Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Um, one thing I want to speak to here real quick is that if you go to the gym three times in a week and then that's it, you're probably not going to grow, right? You need to have consistency. And this is why... I feel like people oftentimes when I, they ask me about training, they're expecting me to give them this whole litany of stuff to do. But really, I want to start at the basic level and do what people can do consistently. Because if you can consistently resist this training, you're going to consistently grow. You're going to consistently get healthier. Notice how I'm focusing on consistency. I want people to be able to continue to do something over the long period of time to maintain their health for the longest period of time. That's way more important than going hard in a couple sessions and just showing up. I just want people to be able to do something they can do consistently so that way they stay healthy as long as possible. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Um, I'm in a fantastic mood. I just finished my upper body training. Uh, my legs are a little sore. It is Sunday, October 16th. I'm normally on Sunday, I would train my legs, but they're still pretty sore from <laughs> my uh, training bout on Friday. Um, anyways, today we're going to be talking about muscle protein synthesis and how much and when you should eat and how often. Um, this has been kind of something I've covered on the podcast before on episode number 49. Um, I think the podcast is called Muscle Protein Synthesis, Protein and Training, something like that. So um, before we get into it, make sure you check out the show's sponsors, LMNT, to get yourself some electrolytes. And since we're going to be talking about protein, get yourself some farm-fed from Axe and Sledge. Use code METOVIC10 at checkout to get yourself a little bit of a discount. And um, without further ado, let's talk about all things to get you jacked and tan. Okay, so why do you want to be jacked and tan? I know I say that a lot, but um, that's another way of saying why would you want to build muscle? Well, muscle is key to longevity. It's one of the largest organs on your body, and we don't think of it that way. But um, if you look at a lot of the data and research, the more lean mass that you have, the longer that you're going to live. Plus, the more muscle you have, generally, you're going to look a little bit better, right? You want to be more sexually attractive to the opposite sex because, you know, that, that kind of stuff makes us happy. And that's kind of what we're designed for, right? So, and obviously, the show is called Liberty and Health. So, um, I want to give all the people that listen something to bite and chew on 
to think about when it comes to longevity and overall health. And I do believe that muscle is key in overall longevity. So as you can see, I am a advocate for resistance training. And I speak about that a lot in the podcast. And, um, you know, it's kind of a repeating theme here. So um, we're going to dive into some research as I always do. And um, we're going to kind of teach you some of the time and different facts that go into muscle hypertrophy. So uh, muscle hypertrophy is the process of building muscle. So um, we're going to do a little bit of a screen share here. I'm going to read for some articles and different research studies. All right. So making sense of muscle protein synthesis to focus on muscle growth during resistance training from Human Connects journals. Um, This will be in the show notes for those who um, are not watching on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey. If you're watching there, make sure you subscribe and like the video, please. But um, muscle protein synthesis is a metabolic process that describes the incorporation of amino acids into bound skeletal muscle proteins. Muscle proteins can be crudely classified into the contractile myofibular proteins, myosin, actin, tropomyosin, and troponin, and the energy-producing mitochondrial proteins. The synthesis of myofibular proteins is primarily responsible for changes in skeletal muscle mass following resistance training, whereas mitochondrial proteins are primarily synthesized in response to endurance type training. The measurement of MPS, muscle protein synthesis, is commonly expressed as the rate of amino acid incorporation in a bound muscle protein over a given time period, typically a single hour or single day. Conversely, the metabolic process of muscle protein breakdown describes the degradation of bound muscle proteins into their amino acid precursors that occurs continuously and concurrently with muscle protein synthesis. As such, the aggregate different rates in muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown determines whether muscle protein is gained, MPS exceeds muscle protein breakdown, or muscle protein is lost, muscle protein breakdown exceeds MPS. Of the two metabolic processes, muscle protein synthesis is more responsive to exercise and nutritional stimuli, at least in healthy individuals, and thus has garnered most scientific attention in the context of muscle adaptations to exercise training. So a long way, or um, this basically a long-winded way to say that muscle protein synthesis is the way of assimilating amino acids into your muscle tissue. Well, your muscle tissue is what you use whenever you lift a weight, whenever you pull something towards you or you push something away from you or you lift something off the ground, right? You're giving your muscle a stimulus to grow whenever you lift something heavy because your body wants to gain that lean tissue um, because your body doesn't understand the difference between um, you deadlifting 300 pounds or you trying to pick a rock up off the ground, right? Your, your body doesn't know. It just knows that it needs to grow because that stimulus, if it can't overcome it, then you're, you may die, right? It's a survival adaptation. So um, I'm not going to read from really the rest of this article. There's a whole ton here and they list out a ton of studies. It's a great article. Um, it'll be in the show notes if you want to read it, but um, I'm going to continue to talk about how we grow. And we're going to tap over to this article here from Stronger by Science, who's a great resource as well. How we grow anabolic signaling and mechanisms, part one. What do acute anabolic signaling mechanisms tell us about long-term growth? This guest post from Adam Tur digs into the evidence. There's a little graph here, but um, I'm not going to read from this entire article either. We're just going to pull a little bit and we're just going to keep rolling with it. So um, this article is a summary of the relevant research on anabolic signaling mechanisms. If you want to get into the nitty gritty, you can find the full 56 
page version here. Um, this article has been edited for clarity and succinctness. Um, and I, I haven't read the 56 page article because um, I'm a little bit of a numbskull. And you know, as much as I enjoy reading this research, um, that would just take up so much freaking time. And you can get pretty much everything you need from the article by just reading this. So can we predict how our bodies respond to an exercise program or diet? Should you eat 30 grams of protein every three hours? Can exercise harm the body? These are some of the questions researchers try to answer in the field of anabolism excuse me our bodies use anabolic signaling mechanisms to communicate to our muscles that they need to grow a lot of research looks at how diet and exercise affects this communication for example our bodies go through temporary changes when we feed protein many researchers argue that we can use these changes to predict muscle growth however it can be difficult for us to predict the future because the body is very complicated we would need to know all the relevant factors that influence the outcome before we can make an accurate prediction the body contains many an, an anabolic, sorry, <laughs> anabolic mechanisms, and they're all connected to each other. Kind of like how a car consists of many parts that rely on each other to function. Sometimes people look at one mechanism and say that it causes gains. For example, they say anabolic hormones, testosterone, cause hypertrophy. Does this mean that a testosterone spike after um, exercise leads to more gains? This is one of the questions we will look at in part two of this series. I'm, I'm not going to be covering that but um, it's just relevant to this uh, tangentially. The media often misrepresents research articles. So there's a lot of incorrect advice on the internet about how anabolic research connects to our real lives. Our goal here today is to figure out that if we can use this research to predict hypertrophy. To do that, we discuss how the body adapts to exercise. Then we look at muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. These mechanisms have many interesting functions in the body, and we will see if they're connected to gains. We also discuss claims about the 24 to 48 hour post-exercise feeding window feeding frequency recommendations and NSAID effects on hypertrophy and strength and how individuals respond to exercise. So when you exercise, people talk about the anabolic window. Well, I don't want to say this has largely been debunked, but there is something to getting protein within a couple hours of resistance training, but it's not like you're instantly going to lose muscle if you train and you don't go home and down a protein shake or eat a full steak, right? You have a little bit of time, but um, for what I understand in the literature, and we're going to cover it a little bit today, you probably want to get some kind of protein in within a few hours of resistance training to optimize, and notice I'm saying optimize, your total muscle building capability because that anabolic response is actually um, greatly attenuated over the course of sometimes even days. So um, how the body adapts to exercise, homeostasis and hormesis. Computers need fans to cool down their internal components, much like a vehicle would need coolant to cool down the engine, right? Where you have a fan that pulls air across the engine to cool down the engine, because if the engine runs too hot, then it's going to overheat and then components are going to break. Um, if the fans fail, some parts will overheat and eventually shut down. To ensure this that this scenario doesn't happen, the motherboard monitors fan speeds and adjusts them accordingly to the changes in heats that are reported by sensors, inputs and outputs, essentially. This is similar to how our body tries to maintain a stable internal environment to survive. In animals, this process is complicated. For example, the body constantly regulates things like our temperature and blood pressure to ensure our survival. This regulation is difficult because the body is constantly being challenged by things in the external environment, such as weather, temperature. Um, exercise is also a part of the external environment because it's affected by what happens outside of your body. So you could think of resistance training as a input. You're inputting weight against your body and your output would be the stimulus to grow so that way your body gains muscle, 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 Jesus, <laughs> muscle as contractile tissue 
to become stronger to overcome said stimulus that you're inputting. In weightlifting, we use muscle contractions against gravity to create what the body perceives to be a stressor. It's kind of what I was saying earlier. To overcome this external stress, the body adjusts its internal environment as a response. For example, the body can increase blood flow to muscles to elevate your heart er, and elevate your heart rate. This is called homeostasis, and it's usually activated by short-term challenges. The body can also adapt by making long-term changes so that the challenges of the present will be easier to overcome in the future. This is called hormesis. An example of hormesis is your body improving your capacity to do heavy lifting by packing on muscle mass. So basically what they're saying there is that as you continually go up to a bar and pick up that hundred pound bar off the ground, your body is going to gain muscle to keep um, overcoming that said stress. So that way, next time you go up to that hundred pounds, it's a little bit lighter. And the time after that, it's a little bit lighter. So, and then you're eventually going to have to do what's called progressively overload where hundred pounds is no longer sufficiently difficult. So then let's say you moved up to 120 and then that's no longer difficult and so on and so on. Um, and it's not always linear. Obviously when you first introduce your body to resistance training, you're going to gain a ton of muscle in your first year to two years. And then it's going to taper off and you'll still gain some, but not as much as you did when you initially exposed yourself to that stimulus. What's going on, guys? Um, we're going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about these show sponsors and the way that you can support me and this podcast. Um, I'm sponsored by Axe and Sledge. Won't really focus in here, but uh, right here in my hand, I have their um, the grind, which is essential amino acids and hydration. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, this is your mom's sweet peach. They have some awesome flavors and awesome names. They also have multivitamins, fat burners, creatine, beta, beta alanine, um, all sorts of different supplements to help you get all jacked and tan and help you become a person more full of uh, liberty and health as this show is about. So um, if you want to support me and support this podcast, then feel free to go to axandsledge.com and check out um, all their great supplements there and use code MATOVIC10, that's M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K-1-0 at checkout for a little discount and to let them know I sent you their way. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now back on to the show. Um, from a biological point of view, our muscles are adaptive mechanisms. If you have a lot of muscle mass, you're well adapted to do one activity, lifting, but maybe not another, marathons. Being good at one specific activity usually means we are worse at others due to the principle of specificity. The principle states that you should train according to the athletic goal you are trying to accomplish. For example, if your goal is getting... A the highest one rep max in the squat, most of your training should revolve around squatting and squat related mobility isolation work. So, I mean, this, I'm sure this is pretty obvious. If you focus on one thing, then you're going to become better at that one thing typically. So if you just sit here and do deadlifts all day, then you're going to become better at deadlifts. If you just do bicep curls, you're going to get bigger biceps. Um, and so on. If you continue to run, then your body's going to adapt to the given stimulus of running. Um, wire muscles are impressive. A molecular perspective, continuing on. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped that last paragraph. However, some researchers question how important training specificity is, arguing that genetics are better predicting athletic potential. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. Some people's genetics are going to be better than others. Um, my genetics do kind of predispose me to be a little bit of a bigger person. If you look at older pictures of me, I was always heavier. I always carried around a lot of body fat and I still have a, I don't want to say a lot of body fat, but, um, you know, a bit, I'm at a healthy body fat range, but, um, if you look at all my parents, then they are larger people in a lot of my family. And that's not a knock on them. Just sometimes people's genetics do predispose them to be heavier. 
Um, why muscles are impressive and molecular perspective. Maintaining a lot of muscle mass is very challenging. Your body is constantly trying to adapt by adding or removing muscle mass in response to the environment. Important factors in this process include energy availability, recovery, and external stressors. So energy availability would be body fat or calories coming in, right? Because what are calories? That's a unit of energy or food. When you eat steak, cookies, whatever, that is a form of energy. Um, or recovery like sleep, you know, maybe even amino acids or the way you rest is going to generally, um, dictate the way that you recover and external stresses would be resistance training, right? These are all different stimuli that are going to change the way that your body adapts to whatever's going on. Um, energy availability is basically your diet, how, and when you eat. Recovery encompasses diet, but also includes sleep and rest from stressors, both physical and mental. In addition, muscle mass is very energy demanding, right? So if your body has a ton of muscle mass, then the way you can actually think about this is that your muscles are a glucose or carbohydrate sink, right? Your muscles are going to absorb a lot of that glycogen or carbohydrate, sugar, whatever, into muscle post-exercise or just throughout the day because your body wants to maintain that lean mass because it understands it came at a large cost. Now, when you start avoiding food or not eating or not eating enough, then your body is getting a signal to get rid of adipose tissue and it's going to spare lean mass depending on how severe the calorie restriction or how long you go without food. Um, if you were to be in a survival scenario, you'd actually want to pack on some fat and an appropriate small amount of muscle because muscle would reduce survival potential due to its high energy requirements. When the body recognizes a starvation scenario, it will atrophy, atrophy being losing something. Um, from a biological point of view, people who have a lot of muscle mass show us that they have access to abundance of resources. Muscle mass also tells us a lot about our internal environment. First, a person with a solid body composition needs to be able to train frequently at a level that challenges them. If you're able to do this while maintaining or increasing muscle mass, you have personality traits such as willpower, the ability to plan and stick to a program and good routines. Second, your internal machinery needs to function properly to be able to make gains. Anything from hormonal and molecular responses to genetics is a part of this equation. If you have a lot of muscle mass, you're more likely to have good internal environment. It shows that you have developed athletic ability as well. Um, one thing I want to speak to here real quick is that if you go to the gym three times in a week, and then that's it. You're probably not going to grow, right? You need to have consistency. And this is why I feel like people oftentimes when I, they ask me about training, they're expecting me to give them this whole litany of stuff to do. But really, I want to start at the basic level and do what people can do consistently. Because if you can consistently resist the strain, you're going to consistently grow. You're going to consistently get healthier. Notice how I'm focusing on consistency. I want people to be able to continue to do something over the long period of time to maintain their health for the longest period of time. That's way more important than going hard in a couple sessions and just showing up. I just want people to be able to do something they can do consistently so that way they stay healthy as long as possible. That is is what I really want to impress upon people. Um, so despite that little side tangent, we're going to continue on. On the flip side, a lack of muscle mass could be a sign of disease, illness, metabolic disorder. In other cases, it could simply be the effect of sedentary lifestyle, lack of food, or poor eating habits. Neither scenario indicates good health. Your muscle tissue is highly plastic, meaning it can grow or atrophy. The growth of 
the growth potential of this tissue is not only affected by your genetics, but also how your environment turns your genes on or off. This is called gene expression. These expressions are vital because they determine how our bodies are constructed and function. Gene expressions not, affect not only our muscles, but also our immune system via mechanisms such as inflammation and free radical oxidation. The media often report inflammation and free radicals are bad for the body. For example, you might hear that free radicals damage our cells and thus we must consume a great deal of antioxidants per to prevent this damage. This view is based on a limited understanding of how the body adapts to its environment. Several researchers have shown that temporary inflammation and oxidative damage is necessary for our body to adapt properly. Thus, by taking anti-inflammatory agents and antioxidants, we might be hindering our body's attempt our body's attempts at improving itself. So um, you hear a lot of people talk about like ice baths and silly stuff like that. And not that I have any problem against that, but what you can actually find is that if you are to do these ice baths or things that actually make you less sore, you're actually blunting a little bit of that anabolic response because that is a response to resistance training. It's a response telling your body to grow. So not that I'm necessarily against these things or against any kind of measures that kind of give you this nice recovery feeling or undo the damage that you did, but just realize that's coming at a cost of maximal growth. So obviously this is going to come down to what works best for you and what you think um, you want to do the most, but um, you should consider what your long-term goals are. Sorry, need to take a sip of the coffee. So the following image um, illustrates what the dose response relationship looks like. So for those just listening, you can see a graph and inactivity and overtraining, it's a bell curve, um, actually are about the same. And actually overtraining is a little bit worse. You have your moderate exercise kind of peeking out the top and strenuous exercise, same deal, but then it tapers off to overtraining. So this is why when you plan out your resistance training program, you should progressively overload, right? You should progressively add weight and then do a deload so that way you reduce the overall cumulative fatigue. And this is something I talk about a lot. And um, on one of my more recent podcasts with Dr. Bill Campbell, make sure you check that out, episode 140, um, we talk about deloads and actually how important they are. And he sent me a research paper that shows over the course of, I think it was 24 weeks, what they did in this study is that they had people continuously train for 24 weeks and they had people train for a few weeks and take three weeks off and then train for a few weeks and take three weeks off. And what they found at the end of the 24 weeks is that the people who took three weeks off were actually in the same place as the people who trained for 24 weeks consistently. So that should tell you something. Now imagine if you actually shorten that time and then continue to train. I think I, have, I would hypothesize, and I'm sure Bill would probably agree with me, that the people, if they would just deload for maybe one week or a week and a half, they probably would have exceeded the people who um, trained consistently because they were offloading and deloading the fatigue that they accumulated. And this is just hypothesis. But um, if you look at that graph, it's actually really remarkable that um, they were at the same place, even though these people had deloaded for three weeks. So just a little something to consider. And it's why I incorporate deloads all the time. Um, how we differ, muscle mass and individual adaptation. Skeletal muscle tissue is made of proteins and it exists in a homeostatic tug of war between creation, muscle protein synthesis, and degradation, muscle protein breakdown. 
These two mechanisms are influenced by exercise and diet. Researchers like Atherton and Smith claim that exercise has an anabolic and catabolic potential. This means that exercise could cause your muscles to grow or atrophy, depending on how you periodize your program and recover from each workout, which kind of complements what I was just saying. Growth is associated with muscle protein synthesis and lowered muscle protein breakdown, and atrophy is associated with increased muscle protein breakdown and lowered muscle protein synthesis. Um, and I just want to tell people for um, those who are listening and watching, this is hyperlinked with all sorts of studies. So all this stuff is backed by the research, and it's pretty obvious when you understand the way that muscle protein synthesis works. So I'm going to highly recommend everybody listening to this. Make sure you read this article and kind of look through these studies just to verify and learn for yourself. So think about it like this. Muscle protein synthesis is like the good bees that bring in honey to a beehive, while muscle protein breakdown is like the evil bees that try to steal the honey from the beehive. Both good and evil bees are constantly trying to bring honey in and out of the hive, but at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how much honey is left. If there's a net gain in honey, plus um, MPS and minus MPB, then the hive was successful and all the good bees mock the evil bees. But if the evil bees won, the hive shrinks in size and the potential for honey storage shrinks with it. This is obviously an oversimplification, but it helps us understand the basics of MPS and MPB, muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. The point is, that honey gathering and honey stealing are the continuous processes that go on throughout the day. I think there's a bit of a misconception when people say that the body only adds muscle at the end of the day or week. It's a continuous process and it's influenced by our diet and exercise. However, there's a lot of difference between individuals and how well their bodies adapt to exercise. Researchers have labeled individuals who respond well to exercise as responders or high responders, while those who do not adapt as well are called non-responders or low responders. So just to kind of think about this, um, if you look at someone like Ronnie Coleman or Mike O'Hearn, when they were kids, they were huge. And you can even see this in like some younger kids where they already have well-defined bodies. And, you know, I'm just making an example here, right? Some people have good genetics where they kind of have a good stature to build muscle. Like Ronnie Coleman would have always been Ronnie Coleman, no matter what, even if he would have took a whole bunch of drugs and he really didn't take as much as people would think, um, he still would have been huge because he's Ronnie fucking Coleman. Um, same deal with Mike O'Hearn. He's probably not natural. The dude's 54 and he's still enormous and he looks beautiful, <laughs> but, um, he would still look like Mike O'Hearn, whether he was doing drugs hypothetically or not. Um, I don't have the greatest genetics in the world, even though when I was 250 pounds, my calves were still highly defined. I'm genetically blessed with good calves everywhere else. You could say probably not like my chest insertions really aren't that good, but I still have the potential to grow. Some people who take steroids just aren't going to grow as much as some people who take steroids. There's a genetic distribution that no matter what, you're just not going to avoid your genetics or your genetics. And that's not to say you shouldn't work to improve, to be the best you, you can be, but your genetics are going to limit how much you can grow overall. Um, an issue here is that a few studies actually report how individuals respond to exercise. The studies are mostly focused on determining how people respond on average as a group. I often see people discussing studies online, and usually they will look at studies results of a study and directly relate to their own life. This is not ideal, and here's why. Let's say you have 10 people in a study. Five increase their muscle mass by one pound following a two-month resistance training program, while five others experienced a four-pound mass increase. The mean improvement was two and a half pounds. You can't extrapolate these results in your own life, and you can't tell whether you're a responder or a non-responder. You might experience a completely different outcomes than people in the study did if you were to follow the same exercise program or diet. 
excuse me, here's what some researchers have to say on the matter. There are numerous reports of large variability gains in muscle size in response to resistance training between individuals, suggesting that a one-size-fits-all approach is likely neither appropriate nor effective for promotion of optimal gains with resistance training. So this kind of goes to what I was saying earlier. Your genetics are still going to determine how much muscle you can gain, but the key takeaway here, I think, should be that you should be the best you you can be just because you don't have the same genetics as Mark Lobliner, Mike O'Hearn, Lane Norton, whoever, pick your bodybuilder or person who's huge and jacked. Just because you don't look like them doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be the best you you can be, right? I've done tons of experiments where I've done carnivore. Um, now I'm doing flexible dieting, fasting. I, I don't do fasting anymore. I've experimented with fat burners. I'm currently taking beta-ectosterone and terkesterone just to see what my body responds to, to see if I can improve myself or if there's a benefit to taking any of these things. Um, and I'm not encouraging anybody to go do it, but I'm just saying you should try everything under the sun and see what works for you and what you can stick to and what your potential is. Furthermore, researchers often use convenience samples in many exercise and nutrition studies. A convenience sample is a bunch of people that are conveniently selected to participate. It's very normal that professors and researchers ask university students to join a study. Let's say the researchers chose 10 fit male university students in their 20s. These subjects won't be representative of the population, population, so you shouldn't assume these results apply to your own life. Let's say that you're into stocks and you want to see if Microsoft is a good investment. When looking at how Microsoft stocks have developed over time, you don't want to look at the entire timeline, not just a small part. If you only look at a small growth spurt in the timeline, it wouldn't necessarily represent how the company has developed over time. It's the same in the, in, or it's the same in science. You need to look at the entire picture. Subjects chosen via convenience methods only represent a small part of the timeline. This is a big reason why we should be careful about accepting research conclusions at face value. Um, so I think that's a great kind of place to wrap up this part and move on to kind of how and when you should eat. So um, from the study here um, from outsideonline.com, and this actually has one of the greatest um, protein researchers and muscle building researchers, Brad Schoenfeld. It's a pretty short article. It'll be linked below. Here's when you should eat protein for optimal muscle gains and when you eat matters just as much as what you eat. Um, because protein is key to building muscle, most people focus on getting a quick hit right after a tough training session. While that's important, the timing of when you eat the rest of your daily protein may matter just as much as, or may matter just as much. Your body uses the nutrients from your meal or snack to build muscle for somewhere around four to five hours, says Brad Schoenfeld, an assistant professor in exercise science at Lehman College. Quote, that means that to stimulate muscle growth throughout the day, you should consume protein every four hours or so, he says. Um, I've highlighted Schoenfeld's research in, um, I think it was episode 49 that I was talking about earlier. Make sure you go check that out. Um, that's just going to kind of tell you my former training program. Right now I'm doing a four-day instead of a six-day split. Um, Schoenfeld recently reviewed the current literature and found that eating 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight divided over four meals each day best supports muscle building. So you're looking at about 24 grams of protein per meal for a 130-pound woman or 32 grams of protein per meal for a 175-pound man. So um, just kind of lay out what I personally do. In the morning, I'll typically have anywhere from 25 to 50 grams of protein for breakfast at about 5 a.m. 
And then at 8 a.m., 8 to 8.30, I'll have another anywhere from like 20 to 30 grams of protein. For lunch, I'll normally have around 25 to 50 grams of protein. Um, at about 3 o'clock, I'll have anywhere from 20 to 30 grams of protein. And then before I go to bed, I'll have anywhere from like, or not before I go to bed, but around like 6 o'clock, I'll have anywhere from um, probably like 30 to 60 grams of protein. And that usually nets me about anywhere from 180 to 200 grams of protein a day as I'm about a 185-pound male. Um, you can, from what I understand, get 100% or around 100% of the benefit of protein by eating about 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight. So <clears throat> if you're about 200 pounds, if you were to get 180 grams of protein, you're going to get about the same amount of benefit if you were to get one gram per pound of body weight. So like I said, if you were at 200 pounds and you had 180 grams of protein, you really wouldn't be getting that much more benefit from going to 200 grams of protein. Um, that means to use your diet to help you get stronger, you can't just load up on protein at one meal and ditch it at the next. Eating protein erratically may result in wasting the food rather than maximizing its benefits, says Cynthia Sass, a sports and performance nutritionist based in New York City and Los Angeles. To get the most out of your meals, think creatively and deliberately about the distribution of protein, <clears throat> excuse me, along with the other macronutrients that round out a perfect plate, Sass says, try your suggestions for the perfect protein pack day. So they're going to go over the times here, take another sip of the coffee. At eight o'clock in the morning, an omelet made with two whole large eggs, men should eat three, veggies, avocado, plus a side of plain grass-fed organic grass-fed um, Greek yogurt with a teaspoon of raw organic honey, a dash of cinnamon, one cup of mixed berries. Um, that's pretty good breakfast. Um, personally, me, I would probably opt in for more eggs and maybe some less plant stuff, but that's just me personally. Um, whatever is going to work best for you, just consume that. Even if that's plant-based proteins, soy or um, plant-based stuff, not that I'd recommend that. Um, just whatever fits your diet, do that. At uh, lunchtime, a large salad made with leafy greens, extra virgin olive oil, balsamic vinaigrette, two ounces, uh, two ounces of grilled chicken, one half cup each of cooked and chilled quinoa and chickpeas. Men should increase chicken to three ounces and quinoa and, uh, chickpeas to three quarter cups each. Personally, like I said, I wouldn't do that. My lunch is normally like ground beef and maybe I'll have an outright bar or uh, maybe like some protein snack or something like that. Um, at 4 p.m., a smoothie made of one scoop plant-based protein powder, frozen fruit, and a handful of kale, fresh ginger root, unsweetened almond milk, and two tablespoons of almond butter. Once again, not something I would particularly do. I would change it up to maybe some rice cakes with some uh, good protein spread, like uh, Fit Butters or uh, Twisted Dough. I like their stuff a lot. Or even if you get like PB Fit and protein powder, put a little bit of almond milk and spread that. That's usually pretty good. Um, and then at 7 p.m., three ounces of boil, broiled wild Alaskan salmon, four ounces for men, plus one cup of Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and spaghetti, squash, roasted, and olive oil um, at 7 p.m. Like I said, that's not a bad plan, but if you can only do three times a day, do three times a day. Two times a day is fine, but it's not optimal. But, you know, what is optimal? It, optimal is going to largely depend on what is optimal for you. So, um, like I said, I'll link this below so you guys can kind of read this. This article is pretty interesting. Uh, funny enough, there's that article I covered in uh, one of the recent podcasts. Um, so this is a study that Lane Norton did that um, he's explained or that he's talked about a lot. 
And it's a really interesting study. A leucine content of dietary proteins is a determinant in postprandial skeletal muscle protein synthesis in adult rats. So yes, this is in rats, but you can extrapolate um, rat da data to humans relatively well. Um, I'll, I'll read this and kind of explain the way that he did it. Um, background leucine, which is an amino acid, and it's actually the main amino acid responsible for triggering muscle protein synthesis, regulates muscle protein synthesis, producing dose-dependent plasma leucine and MPS responses from free amino acid solutions. This study examined the role of leucine content from dietary proteins in regulation of muscle protein synthesis after complete meals. Experiment one or yeah, experiment one examined four protein sources, wheat, soy, egg, and whey with different leucine concentrations um, on the potential to increase plasma leucine, activate translation factors, and stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So basically they fed the rats the different um, sources of protein, wheat, soy, egg, and whey to determine which one had the greatest muscle protein synthesis response. And I've talked about this in podcasts before and um, elaborate on this quite a bit that I believe you should incorporate animal proteins because they actually have the highest leucine content, which is going to trigger muscle protein synthesis the greatest. That's not to say you can't get sufficient protein from plant sources. I even eat plant protein sources occasionally, but I do get the majority of my protein from eggs and animal protein sources rather than plant-based sources. And once again, that's not to say you can't or shouldn't have plant protein sources, but they're just not as optimal as animal protein sources. Um, Male rats were trained for 14 days to eat three meals a day consisting of 16, 54, and 30% of energy from protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Rats were killed on day 14, either before or after 90 minutes of consuming a four-gram breakfast meal. Experiment two compared feeding wheat, whey, and wheat plus leucine to determine if supplementing leucine content of a wheat meal would yield similar anabolic responses to whey. Um, the results are experiment one, only whey and egg groups increased postprandial plasma leucine and stimulated muscle protein synthesis above food-deprived controls. Likewise, greater phosphorylation of P70S6 kinase 1 and 4E binding protein occurred in whey and egg groups versus wheat and soy groups. Experiment two demonstrated that supplementing wheat with leucine to equalize leucine content of the meal also equalize the rates of muscle protein synthesis. So basically what they're saying there is that when they supplemented, le supplemented leucine with the wheat protein, um, they had equal rates of muscle protein synthesis. synthesis. I'm sorry, that, that's kind of difficult to say when you're speaking relatively quickly. Um, I'll read the results here in a second, but just to kind of make it a little bit more in English for most people. Um, as I said earlier, leucine will dictate the overall response of muscle protein synthesis to your muscles. So your egg, whey, and animal sources are going to have the highest leucine content and therefore trigger muscle, trigger muscle protein synthesis the best. When you supplement leucine with a plant-based source, then that equalizes it because plant sources are typically deficient in leucine. So when they supplement leucine with a wheat protein, it actually is similar to that of the stimulus of an animal protein. What's up everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio and sometimes even before workouts that my workout performance or definitely cardio performance would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement pretty much in your entire body. and let's say you drink a lot of caffeine like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, 
um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Uh, also it tastes really really good. Get some uh, chocolate cream or hazelnut cream or even coconut and uh, mix that all up. It tastes really really good. So uh, yeah, make sure you drop by, go to drinklmnt.com slash health and uh, pick you up some electrolytes today. Alright guys, thanks. So the takeaway here should be if you have some essential amino acids in like plat powders, which have all these great flavors and you mix that with like, let's say some bread or wheat protein or rice protein or something like that. Um, you can actually get a similar muscle protein synthesis response by supplementing with branch chains or leucine or whatever. Um, so the conclusions are these findings demonstrate that leucine content is a critical factor for evaluating the quantity and quality of proteins necessary at a meal for stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. Um, they have some graphs and different stuff. Once again, this will be linked in the show notes. So feel free to check it out if you want to kind of nerd out like I like to do. Um, and so this is just kind of another study. I'll just read the abstract. Um, the leucine content of a complete meal directs peak activation, but not duration of skeletal muscle protein synthesis in mammalian target of rapamycin signaling in rats. This study examined the impact of leucine derived from complete meals on simulation of skeletal muscle protein synthesis. Um, experiment one examined the time course changes in translation initiation of muscle protein synthesis after a meal. Excuse me. Male racks approximately 300 grams were trained for five days to eat three meals a day, providing 20, 50, and 30% of um, energy from carbohydrates and fats. Um, plasma and skeletal muscle were collected at time zero baseline and after 12 hours of food deprivation, and then at 45, 90, 135, 180, and 300 minutes after a four gram meal, plasma leucine increased at 45 minutes and remained elevated through 180 minutes. Uh, muscle protein synthesis peaked at 45 to 90 minutes and returned to baseline by 180 minutes. So that's after three hours. Um, plasma leucine correlated with phosphorylation of ribosomal protein kinase, urocaratic, oh, I'm not going to read the rest of that because it's like not even English to most people. Um, basically, they just examine how long muscle protein, protein synthesis would stay up and then kind of taper off. Um, a lot of people used to say that you should eat like, you know, 20, not literally 20, but six meals a day every two hours. Well, perhaps it's not optimal. It should be every like three to five hours. And if you can't do that, then like I said, three meals a day is fine. So um, this will be in the show notes for everybody to read in case you're interested. Um, the time course for elevated muscle protein synthesis um, following heavy resistance training exercise. So this is by um, JD McDougall. And this is in uh, PubMed. As I said, this will be in the show notes below, but this is going to kind of go um, and explain how long muscle protein synthesis after a resistance training bout is elevated. Um, it has been shown that muscle protein synthesis or the muscle pro protein synthetic rate is elevated in humans by 50% at four hours following a bout of heavy resistance training and by 109% at 24 hours following training. This study further examined the time course for elevated muscle protein synthesis by examining its rate at 36 hours following a training ses session. Six healthy young men performed 12 sets of six, 12 rep max, um, elbow flexion exercise with one arm while the opposite arm served as control. MPS was calculated from the in vivo rate of incorporation, loosening into the biceps brachii of both arms, primed 
constant infusion techniques over 11 hours. At an average time of 36 hours post-exercise, MPS in the exercise arm had returned to 14% of the control arm value, the difference being non-significant. It is included that following a bout of heavy resistance training, MPS increases rapidly, rapidly is more than double at 24 hours, therefore declines rapidly so that at 36 hours has almost returned to baseline. So this actually kind of goes to how often you should train. I'm going to stop the share here and kind of finish out the show. So this is why people say that you should train a muscle more than once a week because after 24 hours, it's kind of elevated and then 36 hours, it tapers off. So if you want to train your muscles, you should train them twice a week. And that's not to say you have to, but to, in order to get optimal results, your muscles are back to baseline at 36 hours. So you can hit them again and then raise it again in order to get more time under tension. I put a video on Twitter today of me doing lat pull downs, which are basically just where you put your hands over your head and pull down with the lats, bring it to your chest and let it back up. Um, I just finished my training um, about, about two or three hours ago, and I just had two meals today. And now my muscles are primed and I'm not going to train them again, probably till next week because it's going to be deload week. But um, normally my training um, schedule right now is Sunday and Monday. I'll do a upper lower. So like Sunday, I'd train my legs and then Monday I would train my upper body. And then like Wednesday, Thursday, maybe Thursday, Friday, I would train my you know, whole upper or, you know, lower upper split again. So that way I get the overall volume and hit the muscles twice in a week, because after 36 hours, my muscles are fully recovered and ready to be hit again. So I hope this podcast was useful and it kind of helps you decide what to do, how to eat and how you should train. And like I said, none of this is gospel. It's going to come down to compliance and whatever you can do consistently to ultimately get you to whatever, wherever you want to be. So make sure you like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can do, support me. Um, and like I said, I hope that I've armed you with the information to become a better person and a more Jack the Tan, happy, healthy warrior. So make sure you check out all the other episodes and feel free to reach out. I am at Kyle Matovic on Twitter, K-Y-L-E-M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K and check out A Common Crown and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Spotify, whatever. Um, thank you everybody for uh, checking out the podcast and uh, take care. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done.